If you grew up a fan of the Sylvester Stallone Rocky films, you'll no doubt remember the classic scene in Rocky III when Clubber Lane, Mr. T, is asked his prediction for the match against Rocky. He glares menacingly into the camera and gives a single word answer. Pain. He was talking about the boxing match, but he could have been speaking about life. Pain is universal. For some, it may play a beneficial role, nudging us in a different direction before we create more of it. For others, it may rise to the level of dominating our thoughts and affecting our every decision on a day-to-day basis. But maybe, just maybe, there's a different way to approach pain that could change its influence forever. Welcome to the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brad Cooper, co-founder of the Catalyst Coaching Institute. Today's guest is Dr. Adrian Lowe, one of the world's foremost experts on pain neuroscience and the integration of PNE, or pain neuroscience education, which may be a key for those looking to break through the barriers that pain, and especially chronic pain, has brought to daily life, physical pursuits, and much more. Dr. Lowe is an adjunct faculty member for multiple universities, has authored or co-authored over 50 peer-reviewed articles on the subject, and is the director of the Therapeutic Neuroscience Research Group. Some big news for those who are listening to this immediately and are looking to pursue certification at the MBHWC-approved Catalyst Coaching Institute. We had to shift the schedule around here at the end of the year, and so we've nudged that original scheduled date for this final kickoff this year to October 1st. If you're hearing this in time and you'd like to try to join us, please reach out ASAP, results at catalystcoachinginstitute.com, or check out the details at catalystcoachinginstitute.com. Our next program will kick off in January. So if that works better for your schedule, great. For the employers out there, if you're looking for a way to bring meaningful, lasting change and support to your employee team members and moving beyond the standard wellness program box checking approach, reach out to us. We'll set up some time to discuss ideas specific to your setting and your team and what you're looking for for the coming year. Now, It's time to take a different approach to pain with Dr. Adrian Lowe on the latest episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. (laughs) A big part of our discussion today is about the value of individuals understanding our pain. Why does the understanding piece play such an important role? Wow. How much time do you have, Brad? You you Um, can roll as much as you want, my friend. (laughs) Yeah. I, I mean... Simple, easy answer is we have a supercomputer with 86 billion neurons on on top of our head that is constantly evaluating this thing we go through called life. And one of the things it it pays a lot of attention to is basically threats, things that is, is, is stressful to us. And so when the brain does not understand something, what's happening to me? Why is my knee aching? Why am I walking funny? Um, It builds its own narrative, including a pain experience. And so, you know, if you hurt your ankle today, you sprain your ankle, the brain will perceive a threat and it'll produce pain to protect you. It's one of the most basic, amazing things the brain can do is to produce pain to protect you. And so if people don't understand what's happening to them, the the chance of having pain and having more pain is significantly increased. So this concept of teaching people more about pain, so they go, oh, that's what it means, actually de-threatens a situation where the brain goes, I got it. The guy had a funny accent explained it. I'm going to be okay. (laughs) And the system dampens down. And so that's kind of where we're heading with a lot of the work we're doing. You've given it, like you said, how much time do we have? Um, <laughs> you, you've opened up the floodgates immediately with your, your very first response. So I'm thinking of a couple of different things. I'm thinking of the person who they're not used to pain. And so they 
they they baby it. They they're like, oh, I don't want to walk. I you know I heard it three months ago. I you know I'm sure it's still there a little bit. And then the other extreme of the person that's just like, it'll be fine. I'll just get out there and run on it, and eventually it'll be. Is there a obviously there's a middle ground, but are there benefits to like how do we? Our listeners are probably on one extreme or the other, or are working with people on one extreme or the other. What do we do with that? That extremism, if you will. <laughs> Funny answer is we need the people on both ends of the spectrum to start dating each other in the middle ground, but that's another story. Um, yeah, you're describing basically the good old fear avoidance model by Vlayan and Linton. Um, we have the copers that go, yeah, it's no big deal, moving on. But uh, And that's amazing. That's self-efficacy. That is empowerment. That is um, their focus on their goals, not their pain. And then on the other side, and that's the ones that we deal a lot with, is people that are getting threatening information, right, from medical tests and imaging and the internet. And then they drive towards fear and catastrophe you know, woe is me, cup is half empty. And so there are lots of characteristics that drive you in different directions, um, if, you, if you will, for that matter. But um, that's the interesting thing. Why do some people sprain their ankle and go, I'm good, and then move on with their life? The other group of people sprain their ankle, they move on to a life of, of pain and suffering. And the variables are so big. And I mean, obviously, with you, with your background, would go, well, absolutely, all the psychosocial variables. Um, let, let me answer it another way. Pain is a normal human experience. Without it, we'd be dead. We know there is a genetic condition where a handful of people on the planet cannot experience pain. They don't live very long. So we need to understand pain is a good thing. It's not the enemy. Without it, your life is in danger. But when pain does its job too well, it creates a problem because now it's protecting you so much that you cannot do the things you like to do. And that is where we run into the clinical scenarios. So I I need people to understand pain is not the enemy. Um, Pain is a good thing. It serves a purpose. It makes me take weight off my ankle so I can heal it, get better, maybe avoid the half marathon. So I'll try next year again. So don't run on a bad ankle, but long-term it creates major problems. And so that's where it starts limiting people um, accordingly. So pain's not a bad thing, but when it does its job too well, it can significantly limit what we're doing on a daily basis. All right. I'll avoid getting us off topic because I'm going to have a tendency to do that today. I'm so curious about this. Let's get into the actual definition of PNE or pain neuroscience education in a way. Can you give us a short version in a way our listeners could start putting it into their lives and the way they're thinking things through and formatting things? Absolutely. I mean, pain neuroscience education is just a fancy term for teaching people a bit more about what happens inside of their body, their biology when it comes to pain. Simple thing is, Brad, if you walk outside today, and I'm sure you drive a Lamborghini, but when you leave your <laughs> it's a Jeep. studio, <laughs> when you leave your recording studio and walk out to your Lamborghini and you sprain your ankle, you will more than likely damage some tissues in your ankle. That's normal. Welcome to the human race. Happens to all of us. And um, it'll heal. What a beautiful system, right? Inflammation, remodeling, scarring, whatever. But something they never really taught us in school or in society is that the nerves around your ankle will ramp up like an alarm system. At RAM sometimes says protect, protect. So it produces pain. It makes you sensitive so you can hobble on the ankle, go get some help. And technically, theoretically,
theoretically, as your ankle gets better every day, the nervous system will slowly calm down and get less sensitive. And before you know it, Brad's back, he's running marathons, he's climbing mountains, life is good. But in about one in four people in this world, that alarm system ramps up, protect, protect, but never dampens all the way down. So you have this extra sensitive alarm system. It's kind of like at your house, there's an alarm. How do I set it off? I kick the door in and the alarm goes off. Your alarm is now still so sensitive that when a leaf blows by the window, the alarm goes off. So your nervous system protects. It's designed to calm down, but it doesn't. And so this creates a problem because now it's more sensitive and normal and it limits you and you're afraid of it and you're nervous about it. And what does it mean? And nobody's explained this to me. So pain neuroscience education uses simple analogies, metaphors to explain things that happen to people in pain where they go, I got that, totally makes sense to me. And it reduces your fear, which actually makes you move more, which makes you better. Because an ankle needs movement to make it better, but you won't move because you're afraid. And so it's that analogy. So I would be, I'd be talking to you about sensitive alarms and, and different metaphors explain to you that, oh, okay, I'm just sensitive. I'm not damaged. No, you're not damaged. You're just sensitive. How do I turn it down? Well, that's a good question. And we talk about movement, mindfulness, breathing, relaxation, ways that we have shown that can calm your nervous system down along as part of your recovery. And at what point do I consider tapping into this? Um, Because obviously the other extreme I asked in the first question, we'll circle back to it later is the mm-hmm. person that just kind of blows it off. Just like, yeah, I'm good. And they just go out and, and potentially that could cause more damage. So how does the listener who's thinking, well, I think I'm kind of somewhere in the middle. I don't know. What, 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 how do they assess where they are on that scale? If they're part of the one in four or if they're in danger of falling into that. And does that one in four vary based on all the other things happening in our lives? So if I'm going through a major struggle in a relationship or finals week or a job crisis, or I just got laid off, am I more likely to fall into that for now one in four group or unrelated? Absolutely. Absolutely. Our nervous system is an emotional system. It's driven by thoughts, feelings, emotions, all those kinds of things. And yes, pain experiences are driven by any and all of those things. If you are having a stressful time in your life, the nervous system becomes increasingly sensitized, which increases your pain experience. That's normal. So people will come in and say, I'll ask him, what makes your ankle worse? Well, when I'm stressed and that in the old medical model didn't make any sense because your ankle gets worse and you put weight on it and it gets better when you take weight off it, not stress. What does stress have to do with it? And we're sitting here in 2022 going, well, duh, look at the research. Right? <laughs> so, so we know that. So yes, outside variables drive you. Because that's what people always ask me. Why did my ankle stay sensitive but not Brad's? Well, what's going on in your life and what past experiences and what's going on at work? And, and, and these are very powerful. They've been studied. These psychosocial variables are becoming mainstream medicine anymore. Yeah. So, so that's a critical element of it. Um, yeah. Again, I think there's so many different directions we can go with this. Let, let's talk about stages of change model. Uh, you, you've discussed, I listened to some of your other interviews. You discussed the stages of change model related to PE. We were fortunate, as I mentioned during the, the, the pre show, that we had the Prochaskas join us on our 100th episode. So when you said that, I thought, oh, wow, how, how can these two be integrated? Yeah, I mean, let's just call a spade a spade. Um, behavior change is hard. Um, if behavior change was easy, Adrian would not be 
<laughs> well, and the Prochaskas probably wouldn't be known either. Exactly. Exactly. Um, if smoke cessation was easy. So it's hard, right? And in the pain world, basically, behavior change is getting on with your life, even though you have pain. I know it sounds really crude, but um, our our goal with a person coming to pain. I, I wish, Brad, I can just flip the switch and get somebody's pain from 20 years that's averaging 9 out of 10, whatever that means on a scale, and just boom, it's gone. The most heroic operations going to do it. The most nasty drugs going to do it. But we can, through successful interventions get you to move on with your life. We start moving more, we're sleeping better, we're, we're, we're de-stressing our life, all those things. We can move you on so you can basically, I can raise my kids even though I hurt. I can start my evening classes to finish my nursing degree even though I hurt. It's that model. And here's the interesting thing, behavior change, and especially when it comes to a cognitive intervention, trying to change how you think, doesn't work with pre-contemplators. And a pre-contemplator is my brother. My brother smokes. He smoked his whole life. I sit with him and like, dude, you need to stop smoking. Smoking cause cancer. And you know, he's just going to say, forget you. You're my little brother. I'm just going to punch you in the arm. <laughs> in people in pain, unfortunately, they haven't moved to a part of their journey to get to the, I need to change my behavior. Um, and it sounds very crude. And I'm so nervous here because um, I want people to understand, I deeply believe people's pain. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm a neuroscientist. I've never scanned in brain scans, fake pain. All pain's real. But people, we catch people at different parts of their life. Um, I'm only here because my wife wants me to be here. I'm only here so the doctor will give me my pain meds. There's, that doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means you're not at the right spot yet. And so all I was saying with the behavior model is if somebody sits with me that I would like to help them with their journey is if they're not ready to shift, they're in that pre-contemplative phase Education may not be the best thing. Maybe some nice, gentle movements, listening, respect, dignity, all the cool things we can do, with, including with motivational interviewing, as you and I have talked about in the, in the pre-show discussion. Those are some good elements. Um, but, but the behavior change model, that's where it fits in in our current approach in treatments. <laughs> Man, you're giving me so much here. All right. So first of all, the, the coaches listening, they're, I hope, thrilled right now because you're saying – the person mentions they've got this pain, fill in the blank, ankle, back, headaches, whatever. And, and you're saying the other aspects, the sleep, the nutrition, the stress management, the, all these other things, we're not touching the, the ankle in this case is our example, but addressing those things could then influence the pain. So let's start there. Did I hear you correctly? Absolutely. hundred percent. If you can get a person with chronic pain to get meaningful sleep, I mean, you're, you, it's a significant shift in the pain experience. We got so much research to back it. You talk about mindfulness. The research is stunning right now. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And so that's the problem. In the old days, if you have an ankle problem, we go for the ankle. Right. Well, that ankle has a person attached to him, and that person has to sleep better, eat better, move, um, think different, de-stress their life. Now, ultimately, I have to get to your ankle, but that may not necessarily be the entry point. I can start somewhere else. Right. Um, that's maybe more benign, if you will. Well, and it's also very encouraging, not just for the coaches, but we have so many clinicians that listen to this show, physical therapists, physicians, nurses, OTs, psychiatrists, counselors. And, and you're talking about, yes, address the ankle, but don't stop with the ankle. There's these other aspects that are so, so valuable. So love that. So p doesn't work with pre-contemplation. That is really interesting. Um, have you found ways... so? So let's, let's say that person comes in, 
my wife wants me here. Your example that you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, do you just at that point say, well, you know, we, we, can't, we, I can't help you. Or do you say, okay, your wife wants you here. Do you want you here? Like what, what, what is your next step? Do you kind of just wash your hands and go, look, come see me when you're ready, dude. Or do you have some steps that you like to take in that flow that's happening? Yeah, it's a good question, Brad. First of all, I need, I just need your audience to, again, just wrap their mind around. I'm a physical therapist. So when a patient walks into our clinic and they're pre-contemplative, only here because work comes and you know, my wife wants yes. to be the doctor or whatever. Um, first of all, it's listening. It's respect. Tell me the story. What brings you here? Um, how can I help you? Um, have you had therapy in the past? What has helped? Um, it's picking the low-hanging fruit, right? Well, I had an old ACL injury in high school, and I put some electrical stim and some heat to my back. Now, in the big scheme, that's not going to really change his life, but it's an entry point. So now I put it on that person because it's worked before. He thinks it may help a little bit, but I'm not forcing education. Well, let me change how you think. But here's where a lot of our novel clinicians, actually where my students make mistakes, they put that Eastam in heat and they walk out of the room. I didn't just sit down and, you know, tell me about your life. I I see you're a truck truck driver. Are you local? Are you long haul? Um, Oh, by the way, you got a Packers shirt on. Are you a Packers fan? Oh my gosh, let's talk about Aaron Rodgers and he's, you know, whole right. season, whatever. So you start treating the person and Brad so many times at visit two or three that I do something very benign, um, but I pay, I, I, I treat him with respect and dignity. I have these people to me, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I've been kind of rude to you. I'm not trying to be rude. I'm just, I'm just in a rough spot. I'm like, not a big deal. <laughs> And then they ask you, you know, what do you do here for back pain? Well, now they've moved to contemplation. Yes. So well, here we happen to do A, B, and C. Any of that interests you, and they may, and then say it's their choice. They say, "No, I'm I'm good where I'm at. I'm not a problem. Um, that's okay. We we have to understand we're catching people at different parts of the journey. It doesn't make them bad people. Right. It just makes them a vulnerable human being that's struggling. And I'm just catching them somewhere where I can try and help them. But um, listening, respect, dignity. I'm not saying it just because it's on the top of my mind, but it's it's truly use made time to show up here, regardless what got you here. Um, you're going to spend 20, 30, 40 minutes with me. How can I meaningfully impact your life? Even if it is putting some heat in the stomach and talking about the Packers, it's yeah. okay. Yeah. No big deal. That's, yeah. that's a good thing today. So yeah, that's good. <laughs> uh, how do you see PE become, and again, folks, PE is pain neuroscience education. How do you see pain neuroscience education becoming a more standardized practice, not just for rehab specialists, but for physicians, for PAs, for nurses, for you name it? Well, I'm happy to say it is. I mean, we we started as it started in the physical therapy world, but we now have uh, various studies that we teach medical students, PA students, OT nurses, nurse practitioners. It is now becoming multidimensional, multidisciplinary. The interesting thing is, and our medical providers listening today would know. It's not like they've figured it out. Chronic pain is challenging for everybody. Um, Some of my colleagues, some of my friends are physicians, and they will sit with me um, probably with a beverage and sit there and say, damn, Adrian, this is hard. And it is hard. And so we have have found a way. So so our goal is to train all healthcare providers. And more than that, actually, Brad, we want to change humanity in the sense of it. So we build a middle school program where we're teaching middle school kids in nine states about how pain works. So when that little kid falls on the playground, they go, I got it. You know, this this is bigger. Pain literacy goes way bigger. But the point is, we have done it. We have published it. There are studies going on. We are, um, and it doesn't mean this is the answer. I want people to understand PME is not the answer. It's just a piece of the puzzle sure. that we've missed for a little while. But you still have to move. 
you still have to exercise, you still have to sleep better, you need to eat healthier, all the other pieces. But what we have figured out 20 years ago, 25 years ago now, is people don't really understand why do I hurt. I've had an MRI, I, my tissues are healing, and the surgeon says, I don't know what to do anymore, and, but, but why do I still hurt? And we have figured out from the neuroscience how that works, and we just explain it to people. So it's a, it's a little piece of the puzzle we, we filled in, and for a group of patients, about one in three, that's the numbers needed to treat, this resonates where they go, oh my God, thanks, Adrian, this mm. makes sense, now I get it. And then they keep moving, which is what makes them better. How about for the parents out there? So you, you just mentioned kid falls on the playground and there's two, again, extremes. But just to make the point, there's, there's you know, mom says, oh, my baby, come here. It's going to be okay. And the other mom says, come on, just rub some mud on it and we're going to be good to go. Does that, has any of the research looked back at when you were seven, this was your parent, your mom or your dad's or your caretakers, your grandmother's or whatever's response, and that has produced some patterns? Are we seeing any of that? Are we not quite there yet with the research? Oh, no, absolutely. Um, They have shown that a mom's catastrophization, you know, woe is me, um, after the first 72 hours in an orthopedic surgery is one of the biggest predictors of that kid hurting one year later. Really? Yes. And so depending on how mom reacts, now I want people to hear, I'm not having a go at mom. Dad's probably on the couch watching ESPN, (laughs) but, but, but mom... How she behaves, parental behavior is powerful. Um, you know, it's the old nature nurture thing. Um, how mom and dad lives their pain um, strongly drives a child. And so there's strong studies that show that if a child grows up in an environment where somebody is in chronic pain, lives a chronic pain lifestyle. style of lifestyle, if you will, that kid may adopt that behavior. And in adolescence, especially, and it's interesting because kids can go one or two ways. They can either go the same as mom and dad or they the direct Extreme. opposite dad smokes, I'll never smoke. Right. The dad drinks, I'll never drink. But so you can go both ways, but um, pain definitely does. Uh, we're doing a study in California where we're not teaching the middle school kids about pain, but we're teaching the parents and see how it filters to the kids and does it change their behavior. And it's, uh, I don't have results, but we're working on it. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it does. And so to your point, again, if you're a young person today listening and you've got young kids, you have to carefully think, how am I going to raise my child? Because the pharmaceutical industry is doing it. We get kids Tylenol, kids ibuprofen, the FDA just clear hydrocodone for kids eight and above. And so we're teaching kids Pavlovian style. If you hurt, you take a drug. Right. So, you know, NSAIDs are now like Skittles. Um, or are you going to be the new age modern parent, which is actually the old parent that, 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 you know, looks at the kid. Are you okay? Inspects the area, rubs the area. You're going to be okay. Calming, soothing words, move the joint a little bit. You're going to be okay. Leg is good. Now go play with your friend, social interaction. There you go again. So it's the extremes, right? It's the coddling, but then there's also my dad, right? I'll give you a reason to cry. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, that's, <laughs> you, want to, so, you want to cry? I'll give you a reason. Yeah, that's classic. But, but, but I mean, you know, a friend of mine is a PT whose, whose son came home from a soccer game. He was hobbling and he was, he was like, oh, get over it. Go do your homework. But he had a broken ankle. So that was also not good either. So we have to inspect, make sure it's good, move it around a little bit, check the pain. Pain, typically what you and I would deal with is if we sprain our ankle today, Brad, it should get better. And if you take weight off it, it gets better. It's got very predicted stages. If you load it, it's painful. If you unload it, it gets better. By the way, time heals all wounds. But pain that does the opposite is often the one we have to be careful with. So my pain's not getting better. Okay, that's not a good thing. We need to we need to have somebody go look at it. Um, if I if I take my weight off my ankle, but it's still very very painful. 
that's a little troubling. So let's go see the doctor. Let's get that x-ray. So it's a healthy balance between coddling it, but also making sure that there's no danger or harm in it. Um, and, and man, that's always that middle ground. And it's a little bit of common sense. It's a little bit of understanding behavioral medicine all wrapped in one. I think parents are behavioral medicine experts, I hope, in the middle somewhere. So, <laughs> Are there some general guidelines with that? I've got some in the back of my head, but that, that you've used, like you should be 50% better within the first week another 50% better in a couple of weeks, or does it completely depend on the diagnosis and the, the route of injury? You know, I wish I could, um, you know, we, we are taught in school certain patterns of behavior, grade one ankle sprain takes, you know, two weeks, a grade three. So there are some normative timelines that would work, but we'll, I'm very nervous about those because they're, they're, they're studied in very much in isolation. Mm-hmm. They don't, they often devoid of all the other factors around them. Um, it's a little trickier. We know discs heal way slower than ligaments and mm. ligaments fast muscles go faster. So they're all a little bit variable. I would hate to create a manual where parents have to memorize the following 400 healing phases of various tissues. It's just more of the, um, you know, uh, you did hurt yourself. You fell under the tree, you sprained your ankle. Um, it should get better. You should move more. And, and if we see the pattern doesn't follow the, I'm getting better. The pain's getting a little bit better, less I'm moving a little bit more. If it doesn't follow that pattern, it's typically the easier thing to say, you know, let me go ask the expert. And that could be the PT, the doctor, the nurse, the, the uh, whatever you, your choice is, but let somebody just go check it out real quick and make sure you're okay. Uh, are there other elements? Obviously there are, but would, would one of the other elements involved be the other benefits to pain? So let's say that, I don't know, I'm not a big fan of cardiovascular, you know, running, cycling, whatever. And I, I hurt myself. And so now I have my excuse. Like I can't go run. I'm hurt. So now I'm in quotes, benefiting, it would drive me insane because my wife will tell you if I'm not doing something, nobody wants to be around me. But but for a lot of folks, they're looking for, even subconsciously, an out. And, and one of the approaches I've always taken is, personally, not necessarily with everyone else, is, okay, if I hurt, let's say my shoulder, I don't take the next day off, I do something different. I'm going to hop on the bike, I'm going to go for a hike, I'm going to whatever, or I hurt my knee, okay, what can I do with my arms? So I'm not saving time by being injured. I'm not saving exertion by being injured. I'm just shifting that. And I've always felt like that gets me back on my feet faster because I want to get back to my favorite thing. Yeah. I, I don't know. Any thoughts along those lines of taking that strategy of the injury doesn't give you the out. The injury doesn't equal couch and bonbons and TV time. The injury <laughs> means a different activity, but still an activity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at, I mean, one of the most dangerous things in pain science is the idea of an on-off switch. It's everything or nothing. Mm. Um, those are very dangerous. And so, yeah, what you just described is what we do with people in pain. Okay, so maybe we cannot work with your arm because it's flared up. Well, we put that in a sling, but you can get on the bike. So let's get your legs moving. Uh, most of the neurophysiology that comes to pain works systemically anyway. Um, aerobic exercise, pumping blood through the body. If you pump blood around nerves, they calm down. Um, we can flush a lot of the um, stress chemicals out of the system and ketones, endorphins, serotonins, um, those things get stimulated significantly by circulatory effect. And the, the brain couldn't care if it was your legs moving, your arm moving, but if your heart rate hits X number of beats a minute, it starts getting the endogenous systems working. So um, isometric exercises, if you do a 
grip dynamometer in your right hand and hold it, uh, 50% maximum voluntary contraction, the longer you hold it, you're getting a central descending inhibition of pain, which can affect your knee and your ankle, which you cannot get on the bike for because it's hurting. So, I mean, you can definitely use that. The neuroscience is amazing because... Um, by the way, if you have a left painful arm and you move the right arm, the nervous system in the left arm has to have some movement through it. So um, I'm a big proponent. The neuroscience world would strongly agree with that. But you're right. It also gets you away from that whole behavioral thing about I can everything or nothing. No, there's other things you can do. And let's keep you moving. I think what you're talking about right now is also in the sports medicine world of cross training, right? Athletes may not be able to do something, but they move the rest of their body or they they, they keep going. You know, a runner that has shin splints um, that's 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 on the um, alter G treadmill or on the in the pool doing something else or whatever or biking whatever um, would tie into the thought process that you're into. But very helpful idea, yes. Yeah, interesting. Uh, some of the m- more recent research. Can you share some of the research on P and E that maybe you're excited about? Maybe isn't quite out. You mentioned one. You said I don't have the results yet. Any of those kinds of things that you say, we don't know yet, or we just got this data, but this is exciting stuff that may not be out there in the general public yet? Yeah, I mean, an area that we are doing a lot of research in right now, which is interesting. So, Brad, this may resonate with you a little bit, but but we always say that chronic pain and depression is a chicken and egg. Mm. People with chronic pain develop depression. People yeah. with depression and chronic pain, they're very close. The cool thing is the current best treatment from a rehab movement-based perspective is the same. They're going to move and all those cool things. So we did, we took people with depression. If the depression and chronic pain is the same, and we taught them about pain. So we gave them P&E, and we were able to shift people from high levels of depression to low levels of depression, mm. which for me was a wow. I mean, uh, again, depending on your audience today, but I mean, I mean, I hope everybody can today at least agree with me. We don't have enough mental health providers on planet sure. Earth today. Absolutely. And so if, if people like physical therapists, occupational therapists, which are movement-based rehab providers, can maybe take people at the lower end scale of some of these behavioral m- mental um, issues and help the, the mental health providers. And I'll just tell you, my psychologists, psychiatrists, they are like, oh, thank God, Adrian, because we need help. So we're excited because we can change depression. Um, we can we can alter people's moods and those things as well, not just the physical health and those things. So that's something that excites me about it. Um, we are definitely heading into the world of um, digital therapeutics. So we are now doing p e via virtual reality, augmented realities and stuff, because we can now reach more people globally. You know, COVID is a terrible, terrible thing, but it accelerated this field yeah. for us the way we had to do it overnight. And by the way, that also allowed us to do stuff via, I mean, we're all zoomed out nowadays, but I mean, we are now teaching p e globally because we couldn't travel to other countries. And so we're doing it. We can reach more places in the world. Um, those are cool things. The middle school project I talked about. Um, a lot of our work is also in the opioid area. Um, can mm-hmm. we taper people off opioids by using p and we've published some research in that area. We've got more coming out. But a, a physician, um, a, a medical provider cannot taper you from an opioid if there's nothing else to fill the gap. So if we can build things like understanding more about pain, movement, blood flow, oxygen, all this cool stuff with sleep, nutrition, um, mindfulness, et cetera, we can actually successfully taper you off the opioid over time, which is, a, you know, so there's various areas we're playing with. Um, I, I, so, yeah, it's, it, we've done it on various types of patients, age groups, um, diagnoses, et cetera. So, yeah. Wow. Wow. All right. Let's, let's touch on chronic pain a little bit more here. Um, you, you said that chronic pain in PNE is seen as not caused by unhealthy or dysfunctional tissues, which 
we want to think of, but brain plasticity that leads to this hyper excitability of the central nervous system that you mentioned right out of the gate today. Can you explain the practical application of this for the average person that may not be a a therapist or a physician or um, be tuned into the whole CNS aspect? Yeah, so there's, so there's really actually two parts. So it's all, I'll, I'll I'll keep it brief. First was what I explained about you walking out to your Lamborghini. If, uh, we now know if you have an injury, an accident, a surgery, the nervous system in that area, your sprained ankle, your knee, your back, will ramp up to protect you. In three out of four people, it will come all the way back down to normal level. Life is good. Move on with your life. But in one in four people, the system stays ramped up because of all these psychosocial variables. You're afraid, will I lose my job? Um, the doctor didn't explain something well. There was, you know, all these things drive it up. So, so that's one element of pain is where the nervous system ramps up. The brain plasticity side is a little bit another analogy of this, um, Brad, is our our body is represented in our brain. So if you close your eyes right now and you took your right index finger and I ask you to touch your nose, you can do it. And I'm like, how did you do that? Because you have a map in your brain that tells you, this is my hand, it's my right hand, it's my index finger, this is my nose. So we have these internal body maps. And when we move every day, life is good. These maps are sharp. So this is a hand, this is a foot, you know it. When we don't move body parts, like we have a we have a brace or a cast or we've been injured or heaven forbid, a part of your body has been removed. You cut your hand off or a leg like an amputation. That map in your brain doesn't get exercised regularly. So it becomes what we literally in the world of neuroscience call, it becomes smudged or blurry. And when the brain doesn't identify its own body parts a little bit, it gets a little bit freaked out about us. You know, what's going on in Brad's knee? You know, I'm going to go down to that knee and I'm going to find out what the heck's going on down there. And it ramps up the nervous system. So the brain is always trying to get information and one of the safest ways it can do is to ramp up the nervous system it's an arm system so you can get pain from not moving not moving enough in a cast and a brace and so when we move you in therapy the brain maps get exercised and the system calms down again so yeah it's 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 interesting stuff it's cool um all of us have felt a little wobbly when you come out of a cast or a brace and it feels a little weird and that's it your brain has to find the foot again and for most people it's okay but there's a subgroup of people where this is actually a very traumatic event and the brain will just go on full alert to protect you as well. And does that pop back? So um, we'll stay with the knee. I hurt my knee and then I work my way through rehab. I'm doing pretty well. And then two years later, the tissue is fine, but something happens and it clicks back in some pain that doesn't logically make sense, clinically make sense. Yeah, well, first of all, the mapping in the brain stuff happens very quick. What's what's more likely, if you come to me and hurt your knee today, um, the nervous system will ramp up and I'll look at your knee and say, oh, geez, Brad, you hurt your knee and the nerves have ramped up. If you come to me two years later and say, Adrian, my knee still hurts, my brain and what I've been trained in school will tell me knees get better in two years. I mean, tissues heal. If you still hurt, it's more than likely that the nerves in your knee has ramped up and has never calmed down. And how do we know it? If If I poke around your knee, it's quite sensitive. Moving that knee is really sensitive, but not the other knee. So there's a sensitivity of the system and we can dampen that sensitivity with a series of things of education. We can move you gently a little bit at a time, um, some ways to calm the nervous system down. We can work on some mapping in the brain, those kind of things, but um, it's calming the system down. By the way, the drug companies are spending billions of dollars creating drugs to calm your nervous system down, which 
obviously has side effects. We just in the therapy world is trying to find therapeutic ways to get that nervous system to calm down. So it's not a foreign concept that some silly therapists are trying to figure out. Pfizer is spending billions of dollars developing drugs to calm your nervous system down. We're just going to do it non-pharmacologically in a safe way that you can do for yourself and you're not becoming addicted to these nasty drugs. And if you have a patient who says, Doc, can I just ignore this? I mean, is it fine for me to, like you said, the knee should be better in two years. Can I just go do this? And I know you don't know the answer and folks were not putting him on record of saying it's okay for you to go do stuff if you're hurt. So he's not saying that no matter what his answer is here. So talk to your doctor, do your test, you know, whatever. But generally speaking, what if the person comes to you and says, like, I'm fine to run on it or, you know, work with it or whatever. What do you think? Should I just give it a go? How would you approach that person? So they're not afraid. They're not nervous. They're, they're just like, I feel it, but I'm totally fine. Just gritting my teeth and going. I I am okay with that. Yeah. So the first rule of medicine is do no harm. So the first thing I would want to do with you, Brad, is I'm going to check your knee as as a physical therapist. I'll check your knee. I was trained to take you through a couple of tests to make sure, you know what, the ligaments look good, the meniscus look good, you have pretty good range of motion. Are you going to make the Olympic team? Probably not. But you're okay for what you want to do. Sorry, Brad. And then... If I can validate that your knee is safe, it's going to be okay. Um, obviously, I don't want you to run the Boston Marathon tomorrow. So we start with graded exposure. So I say, let's try a little bit and come back. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm sore. I'm sensitive. Now we teach you different mantras. You're sore but safe. Hurt doesn't equal harm. But I can only say it because I examined your knee. So maybe somebody has to go get to somebody to check it out and make sure, you know, it looks pretty good. Do you feel your knee? Absolutely. But it's telling you, hey, Brad, you're walking. Hey, Brad, you're beginning to run. So in Information is not a bad thing. So you pace yourself. Two minutes of walking becomes three, becomes four, becomes five, and you slowly pace yourself back. Um, but you have to start with safety. Somebody has to be safe. We don't want anybody to go hurt themselves. But on the flip side, just because you feel you need doesn't mean you cannot do anything. You're sore but safe. Yeah, but Adrian, I feel my knee. Exactly. Your nervous system is sensitive. So if you and I go for a walk and you say, hey, I feel my knee, what's it telling you? You're walking. Oh, so it's that reconceptualizing, that rethinking about your pain. Um, Feeling your knee doesn't necessarily mean there's something wrong with it. It just says, hey, I'm still sensitive. Pay attention to me. Just be careful. Don't go run the Boston Marathon. But hey, I'm okay with you walking a mile today. Is that hyper sensitivity, hyper excitability, sorry, uh, of the CNS is is it more likely to return in that knee because it was in our example in that knee because it was there two years ago? Let's say it has been better, but yep. it it comes back. Is it more likely to come back there in the absence of any true clinical, as far as we can measure today, true clinical uh, dysfunction, or is it just as likely to happen in the ankle or the shoulder or something else? Now, unfortunately, it'll be more sensitive in that area. Our nervous system, your brain, 86 billion neurons making 5,000 to 100,000 connections. It can remember everything in your entire life if you want to. And it'll remember that Brad hurt his knee on this day, this day, this time, and it'll never, ever go back to zero because just in case you heard it, there is, you know, Brad, we're talking about muscle memory and something nobody talks about is nervous system memory. If you sprain your ankle at age three, eight, and 17, that ankle will always be a little bit more sensitive. It is normal. It is part of the protection model. It is designed that way. And so that's okay. Um, it doesn't mean you have to stop your life. 
any runner that's listening to me today and said, yeah, I sprained my ankle 10 times. Is the right one a little bit more sensitive than that? Yeah, no big deal, but hey, I got to get my long run in because I got to get back to work. That's okay. That's the coping skill. Just because tissues are sensitive or you, you had an ankle that's been a little bit more wobbly than the other side doesn't mean you have to limit your life. There is incredible bioplasticity in our system where we can hurt ourselves and recover. We all have scars. A nervous system ramps, but it calms. It, um, your right ankle hurts, we shift more on the left. We have such incredible reserve in our system that there's really no need, unless you had a major traumatic injury, to, to not be able to get back to what you need to do. But um, So people don't have to live in fear and like, that's it, life's over, I'll never run again. Oh, no. It just means if I ask you, right ankle will always be a little more sensitive than the other, but it becomes so negligible that you don't even know about it until you step on that rock and like, ooh, there's an ankle. It's okay. It's just telling me, be careful, get it better, do the same stretches that the, the coach showed me last time and I'm going to be okay. So, yeah. Some folks listening are clinical folks, but some aren't. Are there some nuggets you can give the non-clinical, like the personal trainer, the wellness coach, et cetera, when one of their clients brings up the idea of chronic pain or something they've been battling for a long period, obviously staying within our scope of practice listeners, but is there some tips that maybe they, some questions they can ask or some things that they can talk through that you'd suggest? Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, unfortunately people with chronic pain have been treated so poorly by our healthcare system, Brad, I think all of us can listen you know, tell me a story. What brings you here? How can I help you? What do you think I can do for you? Um, what would you like me to do for you? My my favorite question, and and I know it's a little bit more clinical, but I, I mean, you know, I always the idea. I, I when I meet somebody with pain, is I always want to know is you know, why do you think you hurt? And they can the answer can be anywhere on the spectrum from the well, I have no I clue. That's why I'm here to the old well. Now glad you're asking me because I have this. So they have a strong belief. And then based on that, we have an idea where they are again on that journey. Um, but I think the important thing is, we, you know, we often encounter people with complex pain. It is really bad. They're struggling, but we can always listen. Tell me a story. What brings you here? Uh, what kind of things do you think will help yourself? In the old days, we would just go ahead, barrel in, do our treatments, and we, did, we didn't really get to know the human being. You know, um, Theodore Roosevelt has a really amazing quote, and that is the people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so I tell my students all the time that if you sit with a person with complex pain and you feel completely overwhelmed, just remember that quote in the sense of just listen, just be there. Because often it's just the, okay, hey, at least, hey, Brad's listening to me at least. That's a great start. Now, do you know what to do? No, but it's okay. You can go study up a little bit, read for your next visit or appointment with that client or somebody you're going to meet or a friend you've been talking to. Um, but but be there, be open-minded, listening, non-judgmental, all those things. I know it sounds kind of like a cop-out, but it's not. There's good neuroscience. Reassurance is extremely analgesic. We've got brain scan studies to show it, all those cool things. So these poor People are hurting and they need people to, to hear that. And then in between this process, you know, um, get to know them. And then we start incorporating some of the stuff we're doing about movement, education, those kinds of things. The PT that I mentioned, who's taken a number of your courses, he's been guiding me through Achilles insertional tendinopathy for on and off for three plus years. And he said, Brad, you got to throw this one out just for the listeners to hear a specific application. So let me throw this out, see what you think. I'm pretty serious runner, done a bunch of marathons, triathlons, reasonably fast, and I love it. So I'm not looking for a reason not to. I'm not looking for an exit. I love getting out there. It's one of my favorite things to do with our dog now. I'm running I don't know, 25, 30 miles a week, and that Achilles tendinopathy flares 
it's usually when I throw in some hills or some speed work or something. Any advice, boss? Is that a question? <laughs> you know what, Brad? Yeah, I was trained very mechanically, right? You load it, it's painful. If you unload it, it's better. If you train more, it gets worse. If you train less, it gets whatever. But in the meantime, I've learned about things like immune functions. I've learned things about circadian rhythms. There are so many biological things that determine a human's pain experience. Um, we know our immune system resets itself, those kind of things. Athletes, when they get really well trained, they get almost, and you would rec- you would, um, you would be one that would recognize this, but you almost get to a point where you become almost immune deficient high level professional athletes get to the point where they're so well trained so well tuned to get ready for that pinnacle event be it the boston marathon or the olympic games the whatever and or the nba finals and then when they're done they get their system shuts down um so there's immune plays in these things as well i mean there's it's way more complicated than just more running or less running by the way maybe you remember you hurt yourself when you were running hills and that brain is just kicking in that minute you just run an elevation that hippocampus lights up in my scanner and says hey wait a minute dude we're on this hill again i mean there's so many cool things and i think that's the thing we need to revel at these things going like wow, this is interesting. It's not, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It just means like there's something in there, which is your brain that's trying to protect you. And it's trying to say, you know what, just in case, let me, let me make you sensitive. So you pay attention and don't start killing it on, on hill repeats and then go at the end like, oh crap, here I am again. Um, it's, in, it's intriguing. Um, it, it's, it's, and in some people, it will be very limiting. Your brain is just deciding, you know what, I don't want to go there. And so I'm going to produce sensitivity slash pain to protect you. And it, it annoys you because now now you cannot do your thing yeah. and you get, you know, and, and that's, that's part of the process, but um, yeah, that's probably an easier answer today. I'd probably have to get to know you, your whole sure. story, whatever, but uh, pain is, uh, is so incredibly interesting, complex, frustrating sometimes, um, obviously devastating for a lot of people as well, but um, yeah, we, yeah. That's, so, I, so would your advice be treat it as an experiment, tune into it, be thinking about what does it feel like? after the fact, not just during those hill repeats or whatever. Um, And at what point do you say to someone, just run through it? Because I've done that in the past too, and it works out great. It's just like his foot thing will not go away. And I'm just like, I'm tired of it. I've done all the treatment. I'm just going to run. I'll just ignore it. And then a month later, it's fine. Yeah. You know, it varies. First of all, I, I love the idea what you just said. That it's good to learn from your experiences. So we in chronic pain clinics have patients journal, log their experiences so they can learn from it. You know, every time and they can go look back, go look back in their, mm. in their log books or whatever. Goes, so, you know, every time a pain flares, these events occur and they can learn something because if we learn, we can change our behaviors. We can change things that we're exposed to. As far as Driving through it, it depends on a lot of things about where you're, where you're at, what kind of pains you're dealing with, um, how driven you're an, you're an athlete. Um, you've done this before, no pain, no gain. You've told me a story where you say, I've done it before, it didn't bother me. It would be easier to say, well, then just do it. If, if you feel inclined, go for it. There's no repercussion. But if you tell me when I push through, I pay for it, I would probably caution you. It'd be back you off, learn it, change it. Um, again, I, I know it sounds so silly for your audience today. I wish it was simple, just yes or no. Right. It isn't. Uh, we learn from experiences, um, um, but it's the idea of test it, back off, learn from it, test it more. It's, it's you know, Brad, we have a saying in the clinic, we say, um, don't burn the popcorn. Um, and it's the idea of we, we all want to eat popcorn. It's, it's date night. We have a significant other there. Um, we put popcorn in the microwave for a minute and see what happens. So we add 30 seconds and 30 seconds. That's how we exercise. I love and, that. That is great. So, <laughs> 
So I would tell you, you have to have popcorn, which means you have to go run, but don't burn the popcorn. So go run a little bit, come back and say, how'd it go? It's okay. Now run a little bit more. How'd it go? I'm okay. I can still, you know, you kind of pace yourself back. Um, so it's that those kinds of analogies um, that we would use, but um, graded exposure is always a good thing. Touch that resistance. Don't stay away from it, back off, and we're okay. Do a little bit more, a little bit more, and you slowly increase your tolerance over time. We do it all the time in medicine, rehab, in life. You know, you have a sore ankle, you put a little weight on it, next, a little bit more, a little bit more, before you know it, there we go. We all do it every day intuitively. It's a, it's a basic instinct. Uh, we just need to know we're safe. And it's, the best way to do it is to start small and build over time. Don't burn the popcorn. I love that. And I know for sure Charlie is nodding his head right now going, Coop, this is what I've been telling you. Just don't add speed and duration at the same time. I can give you 30 more seconds per mile or I can give you another two miles. You can't have both. So don't burn the popcorn. I love that. That's awesome. Final words of wisdom. This has been fantastic. You've covered the gamut from chronic pain to the athletes to the day-to-day. Is there anything else that you're getting a lot of questions about? Maybe I haven't teed it up quite right, and you're saying, oh, I want to get this message out to your listeners. What, what, else, what else is out there that would be valuable for people to hear? I mean, I, I think one of the biggest fallacies when it comes to pain, Brad, is this idea that, oh, you think it's in my head. Um, this is a leftover model from Rene Descartes in the 1700s, this dualism model. It's either real in your tissues or pain is in my head. Well, pain is produced by the brain and the brain is in your head. All pain is real. As I said today, I want people to understand we've never scanned fake pain. Um, all pain is real. Um, it's our job as providers, in my case, to understand what's happening to you, to learn, go to the classes and learn more. Um, and so um, I want everybody to understand pain is a normal human experience. Without it, you'd be dead. It's very, very real, and it's very real for every person. Pain is an individual experience. My pain is not your pain. And just because somebody um, behaves different than you doesn't make it wrong. It just makes it different. We tend to judge people quickly. Well, that guy is full of this or that guy is full of this, and it's not. Pain is just, it just it's very individual. Um, and so even if we have friends, we have family members, we have children, et cetera, that's behaving in a certain way, it doesn't make it wrong. It just means like, well, it's interesting uh, what's going on in his or her life right now that's mm-hmm. making them react in a certain way. So I think we, we that's a big problem for us. Pain is very real, very, very real. And um, we need to try and make sure we listen um, and then getting people back to a function, moving them as, as soon as we can, because it, they're safe. Fantastic. Dr. Lowe, really appreciate it. This is awesome. Huge contribution. You're making a big difference out there. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Brad. I appreciate it. You know, it's interesting. Dr. Lowe was highly recommended by one of our listeners. A little shout out to Charlie Buick, one of the best physical therapists I know for connecting the dots and making this interview possible. But Charlie wasn't alone. I mentioned this to some other therapists and they all had the same response. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know his stuff. I've taken his classes. So great stuff. Really, really grateful for him joining us today. Thanks to you for tuning into the number one podcast for health and wellness coaching. If you enjoy the podcast, you might enjoy our free weekly Catalyst 5. It's five brief tips, tools, tricks to enhance those four cornerstones. Move, fuel, rest, and connect. And then the fifth one, we throw in a little something for you to contemplate in the midst of your busy day. The link to access these weekly tips is provided in the podcast description. As always, feel free to reach out to us with any questions about your current or future coaching career results at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com, or you can tap into additional health, wellness, and performance resources at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com. Now, 
it's time to be a catalyst. This is Dr. Brad Cooper of the Catalyst Coaching Institute. I'll speak with you soon on another episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast, or maybe over on the YouTube coaching channel.